0: Thanks for letting me interrupt your service like that. It will make a bit more sense in a moment. Um, Yeah, as to why uh, I want to do the Bible reading after sharing a little bit first. Um, Yeah, so today I'll be bringing God's word to you from chapter 17 of 1 Samuel at the branch uh, last year when Carl was still around. He did the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, so I'm just bringing you. It was kind of like a bonus episode for them. Anyway, to give you a bit of uh, context of where we are in the book, um, where we are in the narrative, the start of 1 Samuel, uh, it describes the process of Israel choosing a new king and uh, choosing their first king, in fact, um, because they wanted to be like the other nations who also had kings. So uh, Samuel the prophet was asked uh, who that king would be, and that ended up being Saul. And in the rest of the book up to this point, we've also seen quite a few encounters and battles with the Philistines. Um, So the two chapters before this, chapter 15 and 16, uh, we particularly saw the process of God anointing uh, David to replace Saul. Um, So God rejected Saul as king because of what he was doing, um, and David will become the new one now we arrive at chapter 17 and this is kind of the turning point of the whole book of one samuel Uh, it's the climax where we see david's rise to power and saul's decline Uh, david's journey to the throne room starts at this well-known story david and goliath david and goliath well most of us here probably know that story right uh, in short, David is a young boy who picks up five smooth stones and uses them to shoot Goliath in the head and defeat him. Uh, if this is your first time stepping into this church, uh, you may have heard of it before. Uh, or if you grew up in a Christian family, it's probably one of the first stories you heard in a picture Bible. Or maybe even you remember the Veggie Tales movie, Dave and the Giant Pickle. We might know the story, but do we know what it means? One common application is to identify the giants in our own lives and hoping that God will defeat them. Another is to say that we can have courage like David and the strength to take all the big issues on in our lives. But I feel that both of these conclusions unfortunately only see part of what's going on. They fail to recognize what God is actually doing in his greatest scheme in Israel's history. It can be easy, particularly in the Old Testament, where we read narrative just to align ourselves with the main characters and their difficulties with our own. Sometimes that works, but often that's not the case. Usually the narrative we're reading is about something much bigger than just an example to live by. Everything we read in scripture needs to be shaped by God's plan to save his people and bringing himself glory. As we read the Bible, we need to see everything through this lens. To discover the real truths in the Bible, we need to zoom out and see God's bigger redemptive plan at work. And I think this is the situation here. God is doing something much greater than just making David look like a legendary hero and warrior. Whether you're familiar with this story or not, let's read this uh, story again with fresh eyes as if it's the first time and observe what God is doing. Thanks, Ellie.
1: Reading 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Eph- Ephes Dammon between Soko and Asakar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped at the valley of Elah, and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill. And the Israels the other, while the valley bet- with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out, from, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "Why Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judea. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took a stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance and David heard him. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they fled. They all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and he will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the enemies of the living God? And they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he turned with anger and said, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on the account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because... He has defiled the armies armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his her sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, he chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was still he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome and he despised him. He said to David, "Am I a dog that you come with me with sticks?" And the Philistine cursed David by his guards. "Come here," he said, and I will give you flesh to the birds and the wild animals." David said to the Philistine, "You again come against me with sword and spear and javelin." but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcass of this Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those that gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of, you, all of you into our hands. And as the Philistine closed to attack him, David hang, um, David ran quickly and the battle to the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphant over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him, and he took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that hero was there, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn, strewn along the Shariam road to Gath and El- Akron. Then the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine head and brought it to Jerusalem and he put the Philistine weapons in his own tent. And as Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. And as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem.
0: So, in this previous chapter, from what we just read, uh, we learn about how the Lord has rejected Saul, and David is now anointed uh, by Samuel to replace him. But here in this chapter, we come to an encounter with the Philistines, but this time, unlike the others, Goliath comes forward to represent the whole nation of Philistia. Goliath is a very threatening character standing three meters tall awesomely equipped to take on anyone who accepts his challenge and this is his challenge if you've got your bibles look at verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of israel why do you come out and line up for battle am i not a philistine and are you not servants of saul choose a man and have him come down to me if he is able to fight and kill me he'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects and serve us. Essentially, it's a single combat duel to prove which nation is better. And a result of this, if one side wins, then the other will consent to be under their rule. The next thing that Goliath says is also quite significant. In verse 10, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now this is no ordinary statement. When he says he is defying Israel, what he's actually saying is he defies Israel and the nation and their God. It is God who is actually challenging. And we see later that David is very much aware of this and he, when he comes to the camp and hears about Goliath. Have a look in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And again, later, when he meets Goliath face to face, in verse 45. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is very much an attack against God, not just Israel itself. So, when we read this story, we need to realize that there's something much bigger going on. On, not just between David and Goliath. Now, in these days that we're reading of, the worship of a god or gods was tied closely with the culture of that nation. So, if you were a Philistine, you would have been expected to follow a particular set of gods and obey them. In the book of 1 Samuel, Previous to this, we already hear of the god Dagon, uh, but there's others as well, like Baal, Astate, and Asherah. In some ways, it could be very similar to American patriots, who are very much committed for their country. These nations are very much committed to their own god. So it's not just a fight between two individuals, it's a fight between two nations, which each represent their own gods. And at the end of this fight, we'll see which god is the winner. And I wonder who that might be. It's like a CEO to a company. They're usually the face of the company itself. So when you hear them, you instantly correlate the name with the company that they own. For example, if I mention the name Elon Musk, who do you think of, or what do you think of? Tesla or maybe these days, maybe um, SpaceX. Or if I mention Mark Zuckerberg, who do you think of? Facebook, Colonel Sanders, Richard Branson, Virgin Airlines, yes. All of these people have a bigger meaning behind their name. So when we read about David and Goliath, we should be thinking about the nation and the gods that they represent. The word Christian, or Christanos in Greek, translates to follower of Christ. So, if you're a, Christ, a Christian, you are someone who represents Christ. If you haven't been a Christian, if you have been a Christian for a while, you've probably confronted and been challenged at some point because, you, because of what you've believed. And we shouldn't be surprised at this because the Bible says that uh, if you are a Christian, you'll suffer for that for following Christ. Maybe you have recently tried to share the gospel with someone at school or work and have been rejected or even accused of hate because of it. Maybe because people know that you're Christians, they treat you differently or dismiss you because of that. When these things happen, it can be easy to be ashamed or even offended. You may even question why you continue living for God. And as this happens, we need to remember that this confrontation is also part of a bigger reality we are ambassadors for christ and when people challenge us for what we believe they're actually challenging god himself they are challenging the living god who also defeated the philistines and delivered the israelites if this is true we don't need to feel ashamed or offended because we have a god who is lord and almighty to save the book of first peter in chapter four says if you are insulted because of the name of christ you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of god rests on you if they really knew who the living god was who would want to go up against him so if they don't listen to us as we represent christ faithfully we can leave it to god On the last day to deal with their defiance. So the Lord is the one at work in this battle of the gods. And as we continue, I think the most amazing part of this is how God uses David to deliver the Israelites. After Goliath sets the challenge, it seems nobody is willing to come forth and accept it. They all hide away in fear scared of Goliath's intimidating words, overwhelming power and height. And fair enough. I wouldn't want to fight anyone who has an extra meter of height above me. It's only when David comes to the camp to deliver food for his brothers, he feels the need to do something about it. Goliath defies the God of Israel, and it doesn't fit right with David that no one is willing to do anything about it. So he volunteers himself. Let's read again in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came out and carried off a sheep from the flock i went after it struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth when it turned on me i seized it by its hair struck it and killed it your servant has killed both the lion and the bear this uncircumcised philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living god the lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Notice how unmatched David is here to have a fair chance against Goliath. David is still very young, and his only experience in combat is with lions and bears, not to undermine that because fighting wild animals is quite impressive. Initially, it seems crazy that when David doesn't accept the armor and weapons given to him, and he just decides to go in with a slingshot. What would you prefer to go into battle with? A full set of armor or just a few stones and a sling? Without any physical protection and just a simple ranged weapon, it seems very weak compared to Goliath's kit of gear. But in this, David is actually quite smart as he chooses to go into battle with what he's familiar with. He's given the best gear to use, but he knows that if he was to use them, he will be useless and he would probably just fall over when he reaches the battle line, giving Goliath the instant win. I'm not sure if anyone's a boxer here, but let's say you have a few years of experience and know the basics to win maybe at a state level or even competing at a national competition. If that was the case, so I'd probably say that you're a very good boxer. But even though you have quite a good amount of experience, how would you like to go up against Tyson Fury, who is one of the highest ranked boxers in the world? You know your stuff, but it's probably unlikely that you'd win a match against him. And although you have a chance, I would imagine that the odds would be against you. It's the same here. David has chosen the weapon he has experience of, but he's still the underdog. Unlikely to win. Some might even say impossible. So if this fight seems so difficult to win, why is David even volunteering in the first place? He recognises that he's not just going in with five smooth stones and a sling, but he's going in with God on his side, fighting with him. And remember, as we consider this, we need to keep in mind that this isn't David's battle, it's God's battle. Maybe a good example of this is the current Tasmanian Law Reform Institute report, seeking to ban conversion therapy, which at the moment would include praying for people who ask for it. In the way it's currently worded, it would disobey God's word for it to become law. It is against how he designed the world and desires us to live and love each other. Now, for us as God's people, it may seem impossible that we could ever bring about such change, particularly with the direction our society is heading. I think it's quite likely in the next decade that many of our freedoms to live as Christians will be reduced, and it will become hard for us to weigh up the decision whether we should disobey the government to obey God. Who knows? We may even experience physical persecution for this and we need to be prepared for that. As we think about this, we need to also ask the question, is this our battle to fight against the conversion therapy report? Was it God's fight? I think from what we're reading here in 1 Samuel, we're being told it's God's fight. Now this doesn't mean we're helpless and we shouldn't do anything about it. In fact, God wants us to be part of his plan to bring about change and to do good and what is right in this world. Thankfully, here in Australia today, there are built-in systems and forums that allow people to have their voice heard. And we can use those methods for God's voice to be heard. One example which many of you might have seen and probably heard about is the e-petition on the parliamentary website. We can sign that and let our parliament know what we think about it. We can also contact our MPs and let them know of our concerns. They, uh, they represent us, and they have the power to vote on these things and discuss these types of issues. Through these methods and others and prayer, we can ask God to bring about justice. And even if things don't play out the way we want, we can still trust our God, knowing that he is fully sovereign and has allowed these things to happen for a reason even if we don't understand that. It may actually be that the proposed law reforms are passed and put into law. And this this does happen, we don't need to worry, because God is still sovereign. It's actually a comfort to know that we have a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and in control of all things. And this applies to many other aspects of life as well, where God might use us to represent him on a more individual level that might look like in personal evangelism. You may be witnessing to someone at the moment and it feels like a massive job to help them understand the gospel. We still need to do our job in telling them but it's the Lord who wins them over. It's only the spirit of God that can change someone's heart of stone into a heart of flesh, one that lives for God. And again, we don't need to be overwhelmed about trying to save them, because we can't. But instead, humbly trust God that he will reveal himself to them in his time, according to his will. We don't apply this passage by thinking we need to have the courage and strength to solve the big problems ourselves. But instead, we need to recognize we're too weak to solve it. And it's only God who can fight. We just need to have faith and know he's all-powerful to bring about what is right and just in this world. And as God does that, we need to be faithful to him, just like any other part of life, and being willing for God to use us to fulfill his plans. David didn't just go into this fight looking like an underdog hero, but he went in having the privilege of being God's sidekick to win this battle against the Philistines. Although we are weak, and that actually qualifies us to serve God, God enjoys using humble, weak vessels like ourselves for his purpose. And if we have faith and trust him, then God, the God we serve, will allow us to share in his victory as well. What a great privilege that is. So how does the fight end? Check it out in verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it, struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David is the one who triumphs, which means the God of Israel is the winner. And again, just before this victory, David declares the purpose of this battle and who he is fighting for. In verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It's not by sword or spear that the Lord save, the battle is the Lord's. How awesome is that? God uses David with his natural talents and skills to deliver Israel. Surprisingly, however, that's not the end of the story. After Israel chases down the Philistine as they run away in fear and retreat, there's a big scene involving Saul trying to find out who David is. Three times Saul asked, who is this young man? It seems strange as to why this was included and why this question is emphasized so much. The offer had a purpose behind it and included it there for a reason. And it becomes more apparent when we hear the answer in the last sentence. In verse 58, whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, of Bethlehem. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? Who else in the Bible is known to come from Bethlehem? In the New Testament, Matthew quotes the prophecy of Micah. This is in chapter 2 of Matthew. When he, Herod, had called together all people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, that this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The Messiah Jesus was also from the ancestry line of Jesse and born of Bethlehem. It may seem like an insignificant detail, but I think it's showing us that Jesus is a type of David. In the same way that David volunteers on behalf of Israel to defeat the Philistines, Jesus willingly volunteers on behalf of us to defeat sin. This isn't just history, it's prophetic. And this has happened many other times in this book before. Like Hannah's prayer, which spoke beyond herself after Samuel was born in the first two chapters. Or the ark which was captured, but then returned to the Israelites seemingly by itself in chapters four and six. Or the unlikely win with Jonathan and his armor bearer in chapter 14. Just as God provided for these people, the Lord provides and saves his people through Jesus. Each of these accounts points forward to a savior who would deliver people of all nations again God's bigger redemptive plan is at work turn to the book of first Ephesians uh, if you've got your Bible there in verse 4 it says that he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the Son, the one that he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. This was God's plan from the beginning to graciously redeem those he had chosen and predestined and adopted to sonship. If this battle was lost and David was killed, then God's promise to Abraham to save the world through his family would have failed. As David stepped forth to fight Goliath, the promise of a saviour king was on the line, and God delivered. We are directly connected to the story, but it's only through Jesus. Because God delivered the Israelites, he has also delivered us from our sin by his blood through the cross. Jesus has won the ultimate battle, another battle we could not win ourselves. Ephesians also says that we were once dead in our sin, deserving of God's wrath. Dead is in sin means dead, not alive, unable to do anything with the evil inside us. It's impossible for us to win the battle of sin. Only God can do that. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We can only be made alive in Christ and born again because of God's grace. Are you willing to let Jesus win that battle for you? Have you accepted his free gift of eternal life, Or are you trying to do it all yourself? Are you trying to please God with all the good things that you're doing for others? Maybe that looks like regularly helping an elderly family member or volunteering for a charity or some other community group. Or maybe you're trying to do it by getting rid of all the sin in your life, like swearing in the workplace, looking at things on the internet that you shouldn't be or unnecessarily getting angry at your children. Yes, we should strive to obey God, but is it you trying to win that battle of sin, or is it Jesus? We need to do our part with the help of the Spirit to become more like Jesus, but it's only him who can save us from our guilt and shame. David willingly volunteered on behalf of Israel to defeat the Philistines. And Jesus is willing to volunteer for you on behalf of us to defeat sin. Are you willing for him to do that? Will you trust in the Lord like David did? Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this story that you've included in your Bible. Thank you for its truth. And wherever we've heard this for the first time today or are familiar with it, please help us to continue to reflect on what it's showing us. Thank you that you had a bigger redemptive plan at work here and that through this battle of the gods, through David and Goliath, you delivered the Israelites. Thank you that also through Christ you have delivered us from sin. Help us uh, not to be overwhelmed by the big things in the world that concern us and concern you. Help us to realize that these things are too big and all we can do is to offer our weak selves and trust you that you will do what is good and right because you are a God who is fully sovereign. Help us in the battle against sin to also give our lives to you and let Jesus uh, win that battle for us. Uh, If there's any pride in us or anything we need to confess or trying to do in our own strength, help us to get rid of that and just trust in you humbly to know you are a God who does deliver. We pray this in your name.